Hello, greetings everybody. Welcome to the 95th live episode of Ask Abhijit. Uh, let's see who all is there tonight with us. I can see Savan Ghosh, Kapil, Shubhangi, Abhinav, Sayan, Keshav, Abhirup, Tamagna, Prachit, Raj, Sudhish, Mallapuram, Arijit, Banerjee, Abhir, Barnojwal, Dekha, Praful, Abhilash, Vanos, Racharla, Shweta, Purobinath, Trupti Patil, Chiching, Be Aware, RKA, Pranav, Sagar Das Gupta, SK, Mind Flayer, Sandeep, SK, Bipanchi, and lots of other people. Greetings to all of you. It's great to have you all tonight. And uh, so today I'm going to take questions from the comments. So let's get right into it and let's begin today's, tonight's episode. So let's go with the first question. It's uh, a couple of questions rolled into one. So Pro Legend says, you said that if a country has its military stationed in another country or has a military base in another country, that country is essentially under occupation. So if we think that way, India has a military base in Tajikistan, Mauritius and some other countries. So are these countries under Indian occupation? And Bobby says, by your logic, Oman is occupied by India. There needs to be a distinction between why a base is placed and for what reason it's placed. Japan is allied with the US since the end of World War II. Just because Japan has an American base does not mean it's occupied. It is incorrect, misleading terminology used to describe the situation. Japan has its own autonomy and has the sovereignty of its own land. The policies of the government are controlled exclusively by Japan. They have tri-branch parliamentary system as with most democracies, executive and so on. It also has an emperor as the head of state. As for serving its best interest, Japan has an alliance with the US. They also have foregone, uh, what's that? Foregone specific elements of its military in exchange for American support. All right, all right, very nice. So let's uh, examine logically. So first of all, I've never said that if you have a military base in another country, it means you're you're occupying the country. I said permanent military bases signify occupation. Permanent military bases, not a transactional relationship. So let's let's examine the relationship between India and Oman and India and Tajikistan, for instance. So let's ask this, these questions. Firstly, has India defeated Tajikistan and Mauritius and Oman in a war? No, India has not. Has India forced Tajikistan or Mauritius or Oman to allow India to keep a military base there on their soil? No. India has not. Has India nuked Tajikistan or Mauritius or Oman? No, India has not. Has India forced Tajikistan or Mauritius or Oman to adopt a constitution that has been written by Indians? No, India has not. Has India, does India have a permanent military base or bases in these countries for decades on end? No, India does not. What India does have is a very friendly, cordial, warm relationship based on mutual respect and mutual interests with these nations. So India has negotiated with these countries and they have accepted India's offer to emplace a military base on their territory. And I expect India must be paying them handsomely for that privilege of using their territory for 
India's purposes. And I'm sure there are other aspects to the relationship as well. India and Mauritius have very close relations because of ethnicity and history. So they trust India. They know India is not a hegemonic power. And India has supplied them with with, uh, naval assets like ships and helicopters, etc. And we have a very close, uh, I'm talking about Mauritius here. We have a very close strategic relationship with, with Mauritius. So it's a relationship based on mutual respect and mutual benefit. The same goes with Tajikistan. Tajikistan is a country in Central Asia. It is not a Turkic country. It's an, it's an Iranic country. They speak, I think, Persian or Dari or some variant or dialect of Persian, which tells you that India and Tajikistan have very ancient and very close relations, just the way we have with Iran. So once again, there is a relationship based on mutual trust, mutual respect and mutual benefit. The same goes for Oman. So India, first of all, would be paying these nations for the privilege of hosting an Indian base on their territory. And secondly, there will be other considerations as well based on mutual benefit. That's how a healthy relationship goes. Now let's look at the United States and Japan. The United States has multiple, numerous military bases in Japan, most of which have been there since 1945. And the United States did not negotiate with Japan for keeping these bases on Japanese soil. The Americans have not uh, taken Japanese permission for that. The Americans defeated Japan in World War II. They nuked Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Right? They defeated the Japanese. They... uh, allowed the Japanese emperor to stay on as the titular head of state for their own, for whatever considerations they had. And they forced Japan to adopt a constitution that was written by the Americans themselves. Or they say it was written under US supervision. That's what they say. So it's not a native indigenous Japanese constitution. It's It's a constitution that was written under American supervision. It has certain clauses and things uh, that uh, prohibit Japan for, from doing certain things, right? And they have had these multiple, numerous military bases, air force bases, naval bases, marine bases, other bases on Japanese territory in multiple parts of Japan across the length and breadth of Japan. They've had these bases since 1945 and they haven't taken Japan's permission for this understand this please please understand this is this is these are facts you can verify them for yourself for yourselves similarly let's talk about italy the italians were on the losing side in world war 2 they were part of the axis axis powers the axis powers were japan germany and italy right so the italians lost second world the, the war right they lost second world war And the Americans have had bases, military bases, in Italy since at least the 1950s. So this is, again, a permanent situation. So this is what we mean by military occupation. Military occupation means you don't take permission. You tell them this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to be. Deal with it. And then you have a permanent base there. And you don't pay them for the privilege of doing this. You don't take their permission. They just have to accept things the way they are. So that is the difference between what India, the relationship that India has with Tajikistan 
and Mauritius and Oman and the Seychelles, etc. The relationships India has with these nations are relationships based on mutual trust, mutual respect, mutual benefit. The relationship that the US has with Japan, for instance, is a highly asymmetric relationship. It's a relationship that is based on coercion and based on a, a stark imbalance of power. So that is what we mean by occupation. I hope I have made this hopefully clear. Yes. All right. Next. Praveen says, uh, after the ja after the Russian-Ukraine war, will Japan develop its own nuclear weapons or would it continue to be under America? Also, why would a developed country like Japan still remain obedient to America? Is it fear of Chinese invasion or fear of fat man and little boy? Again, Japan, like I said, is under US occupation. It is. It doesn't have a choice of deciding its destiny. It's not like, okay, tomorrow I have decided that I will no longer obey Americans. It doesn't work like that. There's a permanent American military presence in Japan. The major power in Japan is not Japan. It's the US. So it's not like Japan has a choice. It's not like Japan can decide next week that we, cannot, we don't want the American bases anymore. Please leave. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> they don't have a choice. All right? And uh, you will see these articles in various... Uh, media organizations speaking about Japan as a shadow nuclear power. So Japan has an excellent technological base. They are one of the most, they are probably the most technologically advanced nation on the, in the world. And they could develop nuclear weapons next weekend if they wanted to. They have the technology. They can do it. But they will not be allowed to do it because, well, that would give them a, the kind of leverage they've not had for 70 years. So Japan will not be allowed to develop its own nuclear weapons. And who will not allow them? The Americans will allow them. Why would the Americans allow the creation of a new nuclear weapon state? They don't want that. Right? So uh, it's a developed country, but it's not a strong country. It's a broken country. It's a country that is under foreign occupation. And that's why it stays obedient to America, because it has no other choice. It's not that it's, it fears the Chinese invasion. It, it's not like if it fear, fears anything like that. Of course, there is the threat of Chinese invasion. And the Americans guarantee the security of Japan, I mean, as long as they do. But it's that they have no other choice. So that's why they are forced to remain obedient to the US. They are forced to remain under American hegemony and occupation. And uh, so, yeah. That's what it is. They will not be allowed to develop their own nuclear weapons unless the Americans suddenly feel the need for having a nuclear Japan. In that case, I, I don't foresee that happening. Okay, Chetan says, apparently the current government is preparing well for a two-front war, but is it prepared enough for another half-front war with the internal enemies? I'm asking this question because when anti-national protests go on our government does nothing to end the protests. If it is not doing enough, then what steps should the government do take to control them? Okay, so I understand what you're talking about. You're talking about the, uh, what was it called? Shaheen Bagh, that 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 episode which went on for a few months, and also the, the, the so-called farmer protests, right? And these, uh, all these uh, episodes 
protests, whatever you call them, happened in the national capital, New Delhi. They went on for several months and the government did not break up the protests. It, it allowed these protests to continue. Why is it so? Is the Indian government useless? Is it powerless? Or is there something else to the story that we don't see? You may remember a couple of years ago, I don't remember how long it, ago it, it was, maybe two years ago or so, there was this sudden, apparently spontaneous outpouring of protests in Thailand. Students, you know, educated students, well-educated students, college and university students, affluent students wearing, you know, expensive clothing, coming out with play cards and all that. And they took Bangkok essentially hostage. It, it happened out of nowhere, these so-called supposedly spontaneous protests. It went on for a while and then all overnight, the protests evaporated. How did that happen? It went on for quite some time, just like what happened in Scheinberg and the farmer protests and riots and all that. Do you know how much logistics it takes, how much planning it takes, how much money it takes to organize and sustain protests? You need to keep people motivated. You need to ensure that, that people are there in place. You need to ensure that food is delivered to them. All the facilities are delivered to them. You need to ensure these people get paid, I suppose, and so on and so forth. It takes a lot of logistics and planning and resources, lots of money to do that. Where does all this come from? I wonder. Right? So, when these protests happened in India, the Shaheen Bag thing or the farmer thing or whatever, the question is, who was behind it? Who was funding it? Who was organizing it? Who was planning it? Who switches it on and who switches it off? And why did the government not interfere, not intervene in this? Because see, the thing is this, there are certain powerful forces in the world that can create protests and, and uh, what's called color revolutions at a moment's notice. They have things in place in various countries you know, assets in place, people in place, logistics in place. They have sources of funding via NGOs and all that. And they can create an eruption of, of uh, protesting and violence and all that. See what happened in Ukraine in 2014. Two new TV stations come up overnight and start broadcasting certain kinds of messaging, messagery. And thousands of people are there in the Euromaidan Square. Who's organizing it all? Who's funding it all? And what happened in Thailand? Was it some kind of message to the Thai government? And what about the other, so all the other various color revolutions that happened? Who does this? This is a process that is iteratively perfected, the process of creating a color revolution. So when a very powerful foreign power does such things, it is best to just let it simmer down on its own right because if the government had used force to disperse these protests then just imagine what the international media was waiting for they were waiting for creating a tiananmen square kind of story in india that's what they were waiting for and the indian government did not give them the opportunity it tolerated this nonsense it happened with the shaheen bagh thing it happened with the so called farmer protests so this is foreign interference in India. India is not so powerful that it can resist certain countries. 
So right now, what we have to do is keep our head down, bide our time, and work really, really hard for the next two, three decades, and build up our economy and our power. That's when we will be able to stand up to these very powerful foreign, outside forces because they don't want India to succeed. They don't want India to rise. So right now, the government is doing what is needed. If you look at the history of China. For the longest time, they swallowed all the insults. They swallowed everything that was thrown at them. They were meek, they were submissive, and they just kept on working. So that's what India needs to do. Yes, we have enemies. We have enemies outside, we have enemies inside. And the enemies inside are actually an extension of the enemies outside. So these external enemies are, are, are cultivating assets within our country. And they are funding them via via NGOs and whatnot. This is how it works. This is what they do worldwide. And as long as you are a small power, as long as you are not a major global power, you're gonna have to find other ways of dealing with this. You know. So that's what India is doing right now. I would disagree that Indian the Indian government, the current government, is not doing enough to safeguard india's national security what it has it is it has done what it is doing is the best course of action the prime minister even took back the the, the farm laws because of what was going on in you have to look at the long term perspective the long term national interest yes you may have to do some chess sacrifices in the short term so that you win the chess game in the long term. That's how it goes. So I think India is doing well in that regard. Okay. Um, love your videos and view from the Indian perspective. Thank you. As an Australian, can you say how concerned I should be about China's imperialist ambitions, intentions down under in the coming 20 years? Obviously, for many decades, we've proven, proven we have provided a lot of tokenistic support to the American war machine in exchange for their protection, but I fe fear it won't be enough. So Australia is in the kind of location where it is kind of exposed. Let's take a look at the, the map. So here we are. We have Australia all alone here in the Pacific Ocean. It's very, very far away from the United States. The US guarantees Australia's security more or less. It's been Australia's security guarantor since the end of the Second World War. During the Second World War, there was a very, very real fear in Australia of an invasion that would come in from Japan. The Japanese Navy was very powerful. They could have done that. So that was the fear at that time. Today, you have an even more powerful force out there, which is China. The question is, would China want to take over, I mean, to, to invade Australia? I don't think the Chinese want to go rampaging across the world, invading countries and in, in, enslaving them, occupying them. There are far better ways of doing it. I mean, why, 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 why can't you just buy out all the politicians and then control the country from outside, right? I mean, we know what the Chinese have been doing, this, this debt trap diplomacy, cultivate various crooked, corrupt politicians in various nations and buy them out and then uh, have these ridiculous uh, loan terms imposed upon the country and so on. So the Chinese, as we know, have been interfering in Australia's internal affairs. They have been interfering. Uh, they have apparently, apparently, I'm saying, apparently bought out some politicians and bought out some lawmakers, bought out some 
business people and so on. So their tentacles are deep into Australia already. So the Chinese, the way I see it, China doesn't seek to invade Australia and occupy it physically. There are other ways of doing it. You can do it from far away, from by remote control. So the Chinese obviously have this uh, ambition of replacing and displacing the US as the sole superpower globally by 2049, which would be the 100th year of the Chinese Communist Party is coming to power. So Australia would be part of those plans, of course. So from, from Australia's perspective, it's, it's, uh, it's tough days. I mean, it's going to be a tough couple of decades and <laughs> coming up. For, for, it's going to be that way for everyone. With the rise of China, you will see the rise of China's imperial ambitions. China sees itself as the middle kingdom, as the center of the universe, as the center of uh, everything. And everybody else needs to be submissive to them and uh, kowtow to the emperor. So uh, if America doesn't get its act together, then it will not be able to guarantee Australia's security and all that from, from China. And so that could be a problem. So that is how the world is going. We are witnessing the very rapid bipolarization of the world into two camps, the American and NATO camp, which Australia and New Zealand are a part of, and and the other camp, which is China, Russia, and whoever else would want to stick together with them. And the problem is that for the longest time, the the the, the it's a, it's been about ten to twelve percent of humanity that has ruled over everybody else, dictated people, dictated everybody else about how to behave, how to think, what to say, what not to do, and so on. So people are kind of fed up of the system. So that, and if you look at the level of sanctimony that we are witnessing right now, post the Ukraine invasion. It's it's uh, it's uh, turning off even the most ardent Anglophiles and Westphiles or whatever, right? So they are precipitating this bipolarization and they are pushing people into the embrace of China. So that's what we are witnessing now. So the coming couple of decades are going to be quite interesting and it's it may be tough for Australia. Uh, one hopes that Australia remains a sovereign nation and all. Hopefully, let's see let's see how it goes, but it may not be that way. Okay, VFED says, right now, Indo-Pacific is the focus of geopolitics. There are powers like China, US, Russia, India, UK, France, and so on. But there's no mention of New Zealand. Instead of it uh, being part of Indo-Pacific, is there any reason behind it? Maybe because it's so tiny or there's no role of New Zealand? Well, you're right. You've just answered your, your own question. New Zealand is a tiny, insignificant little nation. It, it has no real geopolitical role. It's not a major power. It doesn't have a major military. It doesn't have a great navy. That I mean, I, I'm not sure even, even if they have a navy. They would have a coast guard for sure. So uh, they have a very small economy. They are, in Aust- they are permanently in Australia's shadow, <laughs> the way Australia is in the US's shadow. So there is no real geopolitical role that New Zealand has to play on the global scene. So that's why there's no major mention of New Zealand. It is part of the Indo-Pacific. It is part of the Five Eyes Alliance, which is the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, the five major Anglo countries, English-speaking countries, where you have people of English origin. So, uh, So that's what it is. So New Zealand is not a major power in any 
sense whatsoever not neither economically nor militarily nor does it have a any geopolitical influence so that's just how it is so it's it's not a major power and that's why no one really mentions new zealand okay surujan says as a student in cern geneva i'm worried if there's a chance of nuclear attack on europe especially when uh, europeans are going to protect whites before us with the increased sanctions russia might consider using nukes how likely is a nuclear fallout given that russia still hasn't conquered ukraine completely even after a month i i would say that the uh, probability of a nuclear exchange a nuclear war should hopefully be very remote i mean uh, nobody wants nuclear war and uh, contrary to what the perception in and the image that's been created in the western media Vladimir Putin is not a madman. He's a very rational person. He knows exactly what he is seeking. He knows exactly what he intends to do with Ukraine. And he knows that if he starts a nuclear exchange, there's going to be nukes raining down on him as well. So and and everyone knows that a nuclear war is lose lose for everybody. Nobody wins a nuclear war. Nobody wins that. What are you going to inherit after the after whoever wins? you're going to inherit a nuclear wasteland so i do not foresee well i hope and i think it's quite unlikely that a nuclear exchange would happen and if there is a maybe one or two nuclear weapons being uh, detonated by mistake or whatever it should not really uh, cause too much of fallout in europe i mean i was in geneva when chernobyl happened 1986 so there was this uh, nuclear fallout that happened in europe there was this big cloud of of radioactive debris that flew across europe and we kids were told not to go out in the parks and not to play football in the grass and so on for a couple of months for 2 3 months and uh, that's how it was and then things went then went back to normal so so the incident in chernobyl was like a like like the explosion of a tactical nuclear warhead you know not a major nuclear blast but a reasonably a reasonably small one so even if there were there were to be maybe one or two i'm just saying hypothetically if there was a nuclear blast or two it would as long as it is small and contained and it's just one or two it should not create a big problem for europe but i don't foresee that happening nobody is crazy enough to start a nuclear exchange a nuclear war so i think and i hope and i pray that there is no nuclear war ever and i don't think anybody is crazy enough to start one not even kim jong un i don't think even he is crazy so let's let's hope for the best and i don't think it's going to happen even though even though the western media kind of is clamoring for nuclear war which is strange and it's it's crazy so the craziness seems to be emanating from the western media not from the russians anyhow okay padmaja says in your podcast you were defending russia um okay I agree with you but I have a question did they not destroy our educational system in our country they funded universities and in the in the planted strong communists who in return our history okay okay first of all I am not defending russia my perspective is not pro russia I am not biased pro russia or whatever I'm just saying things as they are I have explained history I've explained the history of the conflict where does the conflict rise who started the conflict who has been expanding eastwards and breaching breaking all the promises it's not russia right so i'm not defending russia i'm just saying it how it is now 
the question is they did not uh, so so you are saying that they funded uh, certain uh, people in india's universities and planted communists and marxists in our departments and so on okay maybe they did so let's compare the sins of the two sides i had said i had said why should i criticize russia what did they to do to me did they enslave my country they did not did they like the like the westerners did they did not did they starve a hundred million indians to death in a number in in hundreds of artificially engineered famines the russians did not the british did right did the russians steal almost 50 trillion dollars worth of my ancestral wealth that my ancestors and our our ancestors had had, had uh, acquired over 10000 years no the russians did not do any of that the british did and so on and so forth they they they, they partitioned the british partitioned our country they broke up our country they created these divisions that still persist in india the russians did none of that so on the one hand you have a nation you have the west let's let's call it the west which has indulged in genocide in india at least 100 million indians have died they enslaved india they colonized india they stole almost 50 trillion dollars worth of our wealth on the other hand you have the russians who planted a few communist agents in india what is the bigger sin what is the bigger crime what is the crime against humanity genocide 100 million indians dead 50 trillion trillion dollars worth of treasure looted or a few communist agents in india what is the real crime against humanity i think the answer is very clear now when it comes to the russians planting some agents in india's uh, academic system and all you know that's what all countries do they try to further their own interest read the arthashastra understand how geopolitics works understand how statecraft works you have to try and maximize your influence in other countries now at that time the russians whether it is the 60s 70s whatever it was the russians were legitimately worried that india may drift into the american camp into the western camp and they wanted india to remain in the russian camp in the in the ussr camp and therefore they sought to mold the minds of indian students and make them more pro russian pro soviet pro, pro ussr and that's why they funded certain academies and all and this would not have happened if the indian government had not allowed this so i don't blame a foreign power to do which is trying to do certain things if the indian government had resisted that that it would not really have happened so uh, you could also argue like like i said some time ago that we the, the current government allowed the shahin bagh thing to happen and so on and so forth because the other power that is doing that is engineering this is way too powerful us for us and similarly the ussr was way way more powerful than india in the 1960s and so on so that's how it goes but the ussr did not plunder india it did not commit genocide in india it did not steal 50 trillion dollars worth of our 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 wealth it did not do any of those things it did not it did not partition india and the russians don't lecture india today about right and wrong and morality and ethics and all that remember what you are doing you think about your place in history and so on and so forth they do none of that so if you look at if you weigh the two things on a scale i mean there's no question about who has created who who has committed crimes against humanity 
and uh, who is who is to be to be blamed here so i am not defending russia or anything i'm just saying it how it is it's my perspective i see things from my perspective from the indian perspective you may agree disagree that's fine that's fine but that's just how it is i mean these are facts okay siddhant says uh, why should india try to be a superpower mm. there are many european countries that are wealthy and happy we are lacking in both and still we aspire to be a superpower what are the benefits of being one we see the us needs to intervene or invade other countries to project power and has to fight cold wars with russia and china isn't it better to just develop our economy and self defense see if you develop if a nation the size of india develops itself to its full potential develops its economy and self defense it automatically becomes a superpower right india has historically been the world's largest economy historically i think this is not something controversial at all it's something everyone accepts india has historically been the major economic power globally over a third of the entire world's gdp and if you have that sort of gdp your military is going to be proportionate to that so it's going to be a massive military that automatically makes you a superpower so the question that you're really asking is why why should india try to to reach its true potential should we not stay <laughs> below that that's what you're asking think about it clearly because india historically has been an economic etc superpower india had very high living standards that's what we know based on the population and the gdp divide that you get per capita gdp and so on so why should india not reclaim its historical position why should india be content with mediocrity why okay you say that there are many european countries who are wealthy and happy you know ignorance is bliss ignorance is bliss you can be happy and reasonably wealthy but what's really happening in europe do you know what's happening in europe who is the major power in europe is it poland is it germany is it france is it the uk is it portugal is it spain yeah one major power is russia which is the other major power in europe the other major power in europe is none of these western european countries it is the united states since the second world war the united states has been the major continental power in western europe all of these other nations are in one way or other colonies of the united states either via nato or via the european union so uh, these countries countries like germany are under permanent us occupation since 1945 they don't have an independent foreign policy sure they are reasonably wealthy the people have reasonably good living standards but where is the self determination i spoke about the national interest yesterday one of the main components of the national interest is self determination and cultural integrity does western europe have self determination and cultural integrity it does not and therefore this uh, being wealthy and happy is essentially being blissfully ignorant it's like taking drugs and making yourself happy and trying to ignore the truth of what's happening to you right so i would say that india needs to be independent india needs to have its own independent foreign policy which we are demonstrating right now to 
a significant extent and india needs to rise to its true potential india needs to reclaim its rightful place on the global scene its historical place on the global scene so that's what we should aspire to do i don't see anything wrong with aspiring to be a superpower if you achieve if india achieves its uh, full potential economically it's going to be a superpower whether anyone likes it or not so that's what india needs to go for just forget about being a scary country or or a hegemonic country just attain your economic your full economic potential that will take care of everything so so yeah it is good it is better to develop our economy and self defense but that itself will make us a superpower so i hope that answers the question okay devansh says uh, why does china have so many border disputes are they even worth fighting for like the aksai chin region is is it a strategic location or not as it is located in a highly inhabited area so you so he is essentially asking whether aksai chin is worth fighting for every inch of our territory is worth fighting for think about alaska the russians owned alaska they they sold it to the us for a very paltry sum of money they thought it's just uh, not a blade of grass grows there that, that's what nehru said about, about aksai chin when he gave it up to the chinese nothing grows there kya hai isme kuch nahi hai that's what he said similarly the russians were under a different kind of geopolitical pressure that's why they divested themselves of alaska they thought it's just a big patch of wilderness and bears and fish and and that's it from forests nothing else grows there so who cares give it to the us today we find that alaska is one of the most resource rich regions in the whole world full of natural gas and oil and and timber and other resources it's incredibly incredibly rich so it was a strategic blunder maybe it was not maybe they were not in a position to hold on to it or whatever but that's what happens so aksai chin may be a high altitude barren freezing desert but it's our land it's our territory the chinese hold that illegally they have acquired it through force so when the time is right we will acquire it back every inch of our land that was bequested to us by our ancestors is sacred we have to fight for it if you start uh, if you if you start if you allow your standards to slip it's a slippery slope you're going to first give up aksai chin tomorrow they say they will say kashmir mein kya hai give it up to the pakistanis we will have peace then peace and bhaichara and aman ki aasha and all that all that nonsense you think the issue between india and pakistan is kashmir you think if you give kashmir up they're going to be happy and we're going to be brothers forever hell no so if you once you start making concessions there are going to be greater demands for concessions if you start negotiating with the bully if you start giving in to your bullies if you start negotiating with terrorists the demands will increase if you give in to a blackmailer the blackmail will never end it's not a one time payment it's a recurring payment that's how it goes so you, we have to fight for every inch of our territory we need to give the message to whoever it it it, it concerns that we do not negotiate with about these things certain things we simply don't negotiate about certain lines you cannot cross so right now we are not in a position to take back aksai chin 
because we are still not powerful enough, the time will come. Work towards it. All of you, all of us, that's what we have to do. We have to pull together as a nation, as a civilization, and ensure that we um, we attain our rightful place again, once again, in, in the global scene. Now, why does China have so many border disputes? Because China is an expansionist, hegemonic nation. China seeks uh, global superpower status. And uh, so that's why it has so many border disputes. Would you, shall we take a look at the border disputes that the Chinese have? So this here is China. Uh, they have a reasonably stable border with North Korea, but they keep on claiming certain parts of Korea as, as historically Chinese, which means that, that they will open up those uh, claims in the future. Now, they have a settled border for now with Russia in the Manchuria, etc. region. But they almost went to war with Russia about this border. It was negotiated and settled about a couple of decades ago. So it is in this region along the Usuri River that you had these clashes. Was it here? Was it on Dongan Island? I'm not, I don't remember quite where it was. Most likely it was here or one of these islands on this river. So that's where this happened. And the in the 1960s, the Russians and the Chinese had these intense border clashes. Several hundred soldiers died. The Russians had decided to nuke China and then the Americans prevented them from doing that. So this border, even though it is currently settled, even the Russians know that this border issue is current is just dormant. It will be reopened by the Chinese at the appropriate time. Now, when it comes to Mongolia, the Chinese have swallowed up half of Mongolia. They call it Inner Mongolia, which and the, this this entire portion south of present-day Mongolia is historically Mongolian territory. So that's what the Chinese have swallowed up. Uh, they have also swallowed up Tibet and East Turkestan. Uh, the Chinese, this is another portion of the Chinese border with uh, the Russians. The Chinese have various border disputes with Kazakhstan, with Kyrgyzstan, with Tajikistan. As you can see, the Google Maps also shows this border as dashed and not, uh, not a straight single line. So there again, you have a border dispute. The Chinese have been encroaching on Afghan territory in the Wakhan corridor over here. There again, they have a border dispute. And obviously, they, they have this dispute with India. They have uh, acquired Indian territory by force and they have bought a portion of uh, Kashmir from the Pakistanis uh, in this region over here. And of course, they also claim Arunachal Pradesh. And they may have border issues with uh, Myanmar and Vietnam as well. They went to war with Vietnam in the late 70s, early 80s, and so on. They, they claim Taiwan. They claim the entire South China Sea. They have a border issue with the Philippines. This Prattly Islands dispute. They have a border dispute with Vietnam. They have a border dispute with Indonesia and Malaysia. There is nobody they don't have a border dispute with. So they are an expansionist, hegemonic country. The Chinese are bullies. And the best way to deal with a bully is not to negotiate with him, but to pay back in their own coin. So right now, India, India is very clear about what sort of nation the Chinese are. We seek a predictable react, uh, relationship with the Chinese and we have, to, we have to achieve that by being strong. Peace through strength. So India needs to develop its strength. Then we will have peace with the Chinese.
Akash says the current Chinese regime, the CCP, is not good for India and possibly for the entire world. Contrasting this with the Chinese kingdoms, people often say that the CCP is a curse on China's historical and cultural image. Is this true? Or were the Chinese kingdoms just aristocratic versions of the one-party system? What I'm trying to ask is, the culture and religion affect the people of a country very much. We Indians are what we are because of our dharma. How was ancient and medieval China? Can it be called a great civilization? Or was it a collection of power-hungry barbarians fighting each other without the presence of higher values? I would certainly consider China to be one of the great civilizations. It's, uh, it is obviously a much younger civilization than India's. India is the older and greater civilization. Right now, China is economically more powerful, militarily more powerful, but we have a certain uh, equilibrium that we have reached for now. So historically, uh, like, like you say, Akash, the Chinese Communist Party is essentially a continuation of China's imperial system. So China has this curious phenomenon called uh, dynastic cycles. So a dynasty rises, it uh, becomes... It, it uh, comes to power in Beijing. They have emperors. You have a number of emperors in the dynasty. And it reaches the pinnacle of its power. And then for whatever reason, it becomes very oppressive. and there's a re- or, or, or it loses what's called the mandate of heaven. Which means it loses the war somewhere or something like that. And the people feel that, yeah, this dynasty has lost the mandate of heaven. And then the dynasty is overthrown. That's what happens always, even in other countries, other other civilizations. So the dynasty is overthrown. Then there is a period of anarchy, maybe a century or so. And then a new dynastic cycle rises. So that's how it has always been in China. So the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is is, is, we are witnessing a new dynastic cycle. This is also a dynasty. It's not a hereditary dynasty. But uh, the, the, the president of China is essentially the emperor. And the CCP is the dynasty. So the next president will not be the current president's offspring. It will be somebody else. But it will be within from within the CCP's inner echelons of power. So it's a different form of a dynasty, but it's still a dynasty. So a, typically a dynastic cycle would last from anything between 100 years to three 400 years. So the CCP is going to complete 100 years in 2049. So that's how it is. So the Chinese kingdoms were aristocratic versions of the one-party system. And the Chinese Communist Party is a atheistic version or, or a 21st century version or 20th century version of the old dynastic cycles. Uh, the Chinese emperors, emperors have typically been atheists. Uh, the the, the uh, values they followed were usually a certain amalgam of Confucianism and legalism. Legalism is the stick. Confucianism is the carrot. You could see it like that. So maybe I'll explain that in more detail some other time. But that's how it is. So it's it's usually been a balance, a certain certain mix, a certain amalgam of legalism and Confucianism. I think it was Huangdi, the Yellow Emperor, who was a proponent of legalism, which was the brute force approach. And Confucianism and Taoism, to, a, to some extent, is a much milder approach. But all of these approaches are essentially atheistic approaches. China, for a very long time, for the longest time in the past 2000 years, has been a Buddhist country. But the emperors have never followed Buddhism as the state religion or state culture. It's the people who have followed that. And you have had 
local rulers and chieftains who have followed Buddhism, but the Chinese emperor in the forbidden city has never been that way. So that is how China was. It is certainly a great civilization. I would certainly give them that that status. It's not like I'm doing them a favor by doing it. They are. All right. Is Was China a collection of power-hungry barbarians fighting each other without presence of higher values? From time to time, yes. You could say, say so. I think there is a, an element of barbarism in everybody, in every culture. If, if it is tempered by civilizational and cultural values, it is not quite visible. When that goes away, then the barbarism comes out to the fore, which we see in all cultures and, and civilizations in the world at times. At times, we see that. So uh, China has at times been a collection of power-hungry barbarians fighting each other. When we when we see the history of China, they have fought lots and lots of wars. What we find is that all of these wars have been with within themselves. I mean, the great uh, strategist Sun Tzu was a great warrior, a great general and so on. Who, whom did he fight? He fought his fellow Chinese. That's what he did, if he indeed did exist. So that's how it is. Their greatest wars and their greatest uh, military campaigns have been among each other. And whenever a great foreign force has invaded China, the Chinese have invariably lost. Like uh, Edward Luthwak would say, it takes it takes four guys on horseback to conquer China. So that's uh, being a little little flippant, but kind of kind of uh, there's there's a more than a little grain of truth in there. So that's what I could say about this. The culture and religion do, do affect the country very much. Every country has a certain character. The, Rus the Russian nation has a certain overall character. India has a certain overall character. So does China. And so, so does the English-speaking world. They also have a certain character. So that's how it goes. Okay, Drishya says, I recently learned about the Japanese invasion of China and saw the real footages of Nanjing genocide, which were unbelievably horrifying, probably worse than the Holocaust. <coughs> Excuse me. My questions are, have those tragedies influenced the Chinese in making them aggressive, as aggressive as they are today? And why have the, the Japanese still not apologized for it? Why is Japanese barbarism not talked about, even though it is an important part of, of Second World War history? Okay, so I came across these images of the Nanjing uh, atrocity a long time ago. It kind of, when I first saw that, it kind of ruined my day. I think I did not eat food all day. That's how bad it was. So the Japanese behaved in an unbelievably savage and brutal and barbaric way. There's no two ways about it. They did. They they. They cast aside all notions of being human, you know. They were worse than animals, the Japanese who who rampaged across Asia. It was not only in China that they did, did such atrocities. I mean, look at what they did in Korea, to women especially, and what they did to prisoners of war in other places. There is this unbelievable true story of the Japanese executing American prisoners of war and cannibalizing them eating them alive. I'm uh, not alive, but eating them. And so on. And there, there were atrocities against Indian prisoners of war as well. So the Japanese behaved in an unbelievably horrific, barbaric, brutal, bestial manner in the Second World War. No doubt about it. Um, why, is this, why is it not talked about? 
people do talk, talk about it, especially the Chinese. The Chinese make it a point of highlighting and publicizing what the Japanese did in the second during the Second World War. The South Koreans also do the same, right? So uh, I would not well was what the Japanese did worse than the, than the Holocaust. I don't think so. I don't think so. The Holocaust uh, had had a death toll of how many people? Six million was it? I think it's six million Jews and Indian origin Romani people. I may be off by a few percent here and there, but something like that. So I think if you look at the magnitude of the death toll, I think the Holocaust is worse. But if you look at the imagery that comes out of the Japanese depredations in Asia, it's kind of revolting. It makes you want to throw up. So, uh, so the question is, so let's address the question of why did the Japanese do, do such things? I mean, the Japanese are traditionally a Buddhist nation very very strongly buddhist and confusion and not confusion sorry uh, it's it's a mixture it's a syncretic mixture of buddhism and, and shinto right and the buddhism what we call buddhism is essentially the entirety of indian culture they worship ganesh saraswati all hindu gods and goddesses with japanese names and they call it buddhism and the, the western world calls it buddhism it's actually just indian culture like i said many many times there is no real difference, significant difference between Buddhism and Hinduism. It's all part of the Dharmic umbrella. So Japan, Japan for at least 1500 years has been a Dharmic nation. So that has a, these are the cultural and civilizational values that are part of Japanese culture. You cannot say that it's a foreign religion that has come into Japan. It's been part of their culture for 1500 plus years. They have accepted it willingly. Nobody has imposed, imposed on, their, on them. So it's part of Japan. That's what it is. So how did these Dharmic people end up committing such horrific stomach-churning atrocities? Right. It's because of the Meiji Restoration. The, the Meiji Emperor in the 19th century decided that he was going to westernize Japan. He, thought, he decided that Japan was too Asiatic, too primitive, too backward. And he was enamored with the Western ways, industrialization, progress, and so on. So he decided to cast aside Buddhism, to cast aside Dharmic values, and industrialize and Westernize the nation. So he started this reform program called the Meiji Restoration. He did his best to stamp out Buddhism from Japan. Did not work. But the legacy of that is that today the Japanese see Buddhism as a foreign religion that is part of Japan today. So they don't see it as an indigenous religion or indigenous uh, way of life. They see it as something that has come from outside. But it's still very much part of Japanese culture, whatever of it is still practiced today. Lots of Japanese are atheists today. It's a consequence of the 70 plus years of foreign occupation of Japan. Anyhow, that's a different story. So the Meiji Emperor embarked upon this uh, this program of westernization, of, of throwing out dharmic values. He created a westernized industrial force, a westernized army, and that was continued on with his, by his son, grandson, and so on. So by the time of the Second World War, the Japanese, are they, they destroyed the samurai system, which was, the samurais were, were devout Buddhists. They had this code of ethics called Bushido, 
and uh, that was they would they would die rather than break that code of ethics and code of behavior bushido so the modern post meiji restoration japanese army had no such qualms they and because they abandoned dharmic values that's why they acted like the worst of savage beasts that's the reason why all of these these horrific atrocities happened all across asia whether it's in korea whether it's in china or wherever wherever else so it is certainly talked about the chinese will never give up an opportunity to speak about what the japanese did and neither will the koreans now have the japanese not apologized they have apologized multiple times how many times do you want today's japanese citizens to apologize for what their ancestors did right and i think the japanese have been punished enough for what they did in sec- in the second world war i mean they have been nuked twice they were nuked twice they are still suffering from the consequences of the radiation that was emitted by those atomic bombs and they are still under american occupation i think they have been punished more than enough and they they are laboring under a foreign constitution an american written constitution so that's where it is i think it is too i mean how many times do you want them to apologize and then there is this this uh desire to resist this right there are certain nationalistic politicians who want to be unapologetic because they are sick and tired of being made to apologize and of laboring under this back breaking foreign occupation of japan so there are certain currents in japanese politics that are like they 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 want to glorify the japanese imperial era of the second world war and so on so there are obviously in in a in a nation you will have all kinds of different schools of thought and so on and so forth so that is highlighted from time to time and that's used to portray japan as a nation that is still unapologetic about what it has done which is not quite the case the japanese as a whole as a nation are kind of very pacifistic so that's where we are vis-a-vis japan okay rushikesh says how does any nation decide or act according to their national interest who they who are they counseled by is there any official department of the national interest uh, and, and who are the people analyzing and anticipating all of that okay so what you're saying is that every nation does have a certain national interest depending on the nation i mean the pakistani national interest would be different from the indian national interest which would be different from the chinese national interest which would be different from the national interest of ghana or botswana or peru and so on every country depending on its geography on its history on its culture ethnicity and so on and so forth would have a different uh set of national interests core interests peripheral interests and so on and so forth so who decides what is the national interest it's typically the the government that is in power and the politician or politicians who are at the who have the decision making authority at the highest level they are the ones who would decide what is the national interest and it's look at india's own history did our so called uh, leaders in the 20th century truly pursue india's national interest did we did mr nehru pursue india's national interest did he promote and further india's national interest he embarked upon this uh, path of fabian socialism he stifled the indian economy 
it grew at 1% or 2% per year the nehruvian rate of growth he imposed this enormous web of bureaucratic red tape on india is that following india's national interest no so very often you will have leaders who are kind of well what what polite word do you, would you like me to use about the great shri nehru ji well let's say clueless incompetent i think that's the nicest thing you can say about him and similarly there are lots of other countries which whose leaders don't pursue don't promote don't further the national interest there are these all these despotic little tin pot dictators in africa who are the fruit of the century or so of colonization of africa africa has been divided up into artificial nations which don't recognize ancient tribal and ethnic divisions so you have civil wars you have these dictators that are propped up by european and western powers and these dictators don't care about the national interest these are artificially created nations so they don't care about the national interest they care about enriching themselves so it's very easy to influence such people look at the chinese debt trap diplomacy across the world they go into these poor countries which are run by these dodgy characters they use checkbook diplomacy they give them whatever money they want and then they have them sign off on these ridiculous uh, loan terms so there are lots of countries whose leaders do not follow the national interest they do not act according to the national interest so they enrich themselves and their own family and they ruin the nation in the in, in the process see what happened to sri lanka sri lanka was entrapped by the chinese it's now the indians who are having to bail sri lanka out so there is no official department of the national interest in any country that i know of it's 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 about uh, the kind of uh, system that you have is your system good enough is your system so good that it through it it gives you leader after leader who knows what the national interest is and who will act according to the national national interest does your system throw up competent leaders does your system throw up excellent leaders or is your system hit and miss sometimes you will have a good leader sometimes you will have a terrible leader who will undo decades of good so it depends on that right so that's how it goes i mean if you look at thousands of years of history you will find that you have empires that rise and fall empires that rise and fall if you look at india's history in the past 2000 years you two and a half thousand years you had the mauryan empire it rose it made india great then it crumbled then you had pushyamitra shunga in his shunga in his empire which was rather short lived then you had the kushan empire which reached its zenith during the time of the great emperor kanishka and then the kushan empire also crumbled then you had the gupta empire then you had the empire of the karkotas then you had the chola empire then you had the invasions and then you had the maratha empire the maratha empire could have been so great it freed india from foreign occupation and then they fell because of uh, because of the wrong kind of leaders that came up weak leaders and so on so that's how it goes so it's always a, a cyclical thing so eventually in any such cycle you will have leaders who do not act according to the national interest or who are not strong enough that they can do it who do not know how to control the levers of power and then things go astray so that's how it is 
Abhishek says, how legit is this happiness index report that's making the rounds on social media right now, showing India to be ranked at 136 in the world? What variables does it use to come up to this to come to this conclusion? And is it a fair assessment of the ground reality? These reports and indices that the Western world throws up are based on God knows what. I don't know. I mean, if you want to measure the happiness coefficient or happiness index of a certain nation, I would expect that you would need to do a detailed survey on the ground, have a significant statistical sample of the population, not just one city, but across the length and the breadth of the country. And you would need certain scientific indices that you need to uh, evaluate. Now, is there a universally recognized index of happiness? I mean, what is it that constitutes happiness? Is happiness a scientific thing? Can you define happiness scientifically? I think it depends from person to person. What I consider to be happiness, you may, you may not consider that to be happiness. So, so there is no scientific definition of happiness, first of all. There is no consensus in the scientific community about what constitutes happiness, what factors come when they come together, they overall define happiness, happiness and all that, right? So these people, they come up with these rankings and all that based on their whims and fancies, based on God knows what data, what is the sample they've selected to come up with this thing within India? And, and how many people did the survey in India? Are they serving the same number of people in each country? Are they doing a proper scientific survey? What is the methodology? Is it uh, based on interviews? Is it, is it based on some other indices or data? How, how is it done? I have no idea. I mean, tomorrow I could come, come up with an index that ranks the democracies of the world according to my perception. I, I'm sure I could come up with a very scientific definition of what is a strong democracy and what's a weak democracy. Let's call it the Chowda Index of Democracy. Should I do that? I'm sure it will make a lot of people unhappy. So, you know, that's how it is done. We don't need to take all of this seriously. The world is unfortunately very occidentalist, very Eurocentric. It's all based upon their perception of what happiness is. I mean, these are some of the unhappiest countries in the world, the Western countries. So I, I don't take this, take this seriously at all. It is not a fair assessment of the ground reality. And these indices, etc., are actually used for geopolitical purposes to paint your country as either being undemocratic or fascist or unhappy and so on and so forth. And that is used to create certain perceptions of certain countries globally. So we should not take these things seriously. Sachin says, I have always wanted to know what which civilization is the oldest. Indian or Egyptian? The oldest known civilization in the world is the Indian civilization. The oldest continuously existing civilization in the world is the Indian civilization. The beginnings of India's civilization go back at least 10,000 years. How do I make this claim? On what basis do I make this outlandish claim? Well, let's look at the archaeological record in the western region of India, Indian subcontinent, which includes Pakistan, Balochistan, Afghanistan and so on. The so-called Sapta Sindhu region, which once had seven rivers, great rivers, 
and that's where we had the so called harappan phase of our civilization or the saraswati sindhu phase of our civilization they also call it the indus valley civilization it's not a separate civilization it's a phase of india civilization so that is the oldest phase of india's civilization and how old is it so there are thousands of unexplored archaeological sites that date back to this era the oldest known such archaeological site is the site of birranna in i think it's in haryana today and it has been carbon dated to be about 9 and 1/2000 years old so it was inhabited 9.5000 years before today and there are thousands of unexplored sites all across the length and the breadth of the saraswati sindhu basin the saptasindhu region so if the oldest site that we know of is 9 and 1/2000 years old and we have explored maybe 1% of the sites one could with reasonable confidence claim that this phase of our civilization was at least 10000 years old most likely it was maybe 20000 years old who knows we will know only when our archaeologists get to work and do what they are paid for so our civilization dates back at least 10000 years minimum and what is remarkable is that there is cultural continuity that dates back 10000 years elements of culture that were discovered in beranan and other other places are still visible today in india in day to day life so you can look look at my other videos and uh, you will find the details there so india's culture has continuously existed for 10000 years indian civilization is at least that much old egypt dates back to maybe 4000 5000 bc it's very old no doubt but not quite as old as india china dates back to maybe 1500 bc maybe 2000 bc which means it's about 4000 years old let's give it 5000 years so maybe china is about 5000 years old egypt maybe 6 maybe 7000 years old at the at the at the most india is way 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 older than that so the oldest civilization is without any doubt whatsoever indian civilization okay pawan says in my history book it is written that christian missionaries played a significant role in promoting language literature and art is it true i want to know your history textbook in this case in this case is absolutely right christian missionaries played a very significant role in promoting language in promoting literature and promoting art the only question you have to ask yourself is which language did they promote whose literature did they promote and what forms of art did they promote did they promote indian languages did they promote indian literature did they promote indian art and culture or did they promote foreign languages foreign literature and foreign art that's the only question you have to ask yourself so technically your textbook is right they promoted language literature and art the only problem is that they tried to impose foreign languages foreign literature foreign religion and foreign art upon indians and that succeeded to a significant extent it is a work in progress a demographic reengineering project that's still in progress right now so that is the truth they played a very significant role and they are still playing a very significant role in promoting culture and language and literature 
foreign culture, language, literature, art. And they're doing it at the expense of Indian languages, Indian literature, Indian art. Look at the language I'm speaking in. This is called mental colonization. We are all a consequence of all this. Next. Ganesh says, as per Asabiya theory by Ibn Khaldun, in dynastic politics of power, uh, third or maximum fourth generation loses the power completely. But Mughals successfully kept power to themselves for up to six generations, Babur to Aurangzeb. How? What did they do differently? So I haven't read the uh, Asabiya theory by Ibn Khaldun or the Muqaddimah that he uh, published. So I don't know exactly what he said, but let's say he stated that in dynastic politics, three or four generations, uh, you have uh, power and then they lose power. Well, if you look at Indian history, that doesn't hold true at all. The Mauryan Empire, the Mauryan dynasty had way more than four generations who stayed in power, maybe most likely more than 10. If you look at the Kushan Empire, the Kushan dynasty, you had like 15 or so rulers who were in power in the same dynasty. The same goes for the Guptas. You had uh, Shri Gupta, Ghatod then uh, Chandragupta the first, Kumara Gupta, Skanda Gupta. I'm sure I got the sequence not quite right. But you had a large number of rulers. They were not all emperors of all India, but they were in power. Right. So the dynasty lasted a significant amount of time. You had lots of iterations, generations of the, of the dynasty, which were in political power. And the, and the same goes for the Cholas. The Chola, the Chola dynasty was in power for 1500 years, approximately. They were not always emperors. At some times, at some points in time, they were small chieftains at a district level or so, but they stayed in power at, in some way or the other. And it's uh, it's one of the longest ruling dynasties in the whole world. They weren't emperors of India and Southeast Asia for 1500 years. That was a small phase. Uh, in the 10th and 11th centuries, but this dynasty would have had hundreds of generations. Right. So these uh, theories don't always hold true. This is not a scientific theory. It's more like a conjecture that Ibn Khaldun came up with. And he came up with this conjecture most likely in the context of the Islamic world. Maybe, uh, I'm not sure where, what time period it was and all, but there is a different context compared to India. Even if you look at the Japanese, their their current dynasty has lots of uh, is, is many many generations old. So that's how it goes, right? So it's not like a rule of thumb. It's not something like a, a, a law that's set in stone. It depends from place to place. In certain cultural contexts, you will have lots of generations in a dynasty. In certain cultural contexts, you may have maximum three or four generations. It all depends. That's how it goes. Is it true that Hindus or Brahmins were not allowed to cross the sea according to Hinduism? Which is one of the reasons that caused the first war of independence. You're referring to 1857. So... In the Rig Veda, there is a mention of ships and samudra. In the Shatapata Brahmana, which is a Vedic text, there is a reference to ships that have a hundred oars. We know for a fact that Indian genetic lineages were introduced into Australia about 5,000 years ago. Australia is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. 
how did indian genetic lineages make an introgression into the australian gene pool 5000 years before today it means indians went there by by sea they crossed the sea and went to australia it is known for a fact that indian zebu cattle first appeared in africa almost 10000 years ago and there was a second wave of indian zebu cattle coming into africa egypt to be more specific about 4000 years before today and we know that the whole of eastern africa has a very strong indian culture and influence the only way to to reach indian eastern africa from india is by sea right i mean uh, if you talk about somalia kenya tanzania mozambique madagascar and so on you have a very strong indian cultural and genetic influence there the genetic influence is not yet proven because nobody has done genetic analysis of these people but it will come in time so indians have been going and trading and, and communicating and maybe living in eastern africa for for most likely thousands of years it is known that indian merchants traded with egypt 2000 years before today and maybe most likely much before that as well it is also known that indian traders wealthy indian traders would trade with rome in roman ports they would go there by sea from indian ports they would give the romans they would uh, sell to the romans whatever the romans wanted from india and they would take back gold from rome rome in return so india has always been a maritime nation a great maritime nation a seafaring nation india has always been that the cholas the cholas had brahmins the kalingas the kalinga kingdom also had brahmins the kalingans had been trading with southeast asia for at least 3000 years before today they are the ones who first introduced indian culture and hinduism into southeast asia and the cholas followed suit about 1000 years before today and the cholas had a magnificent maritime empire they had the most powerful navy on the surface of the planet at that time the cholas were hindus they were not some secular empire right so that's how it is so it is absolutely incorrect i mean i know this claim is made in indian history textbooks and all that it, these are lies these are incredible lies india has always been a maritime and seafaring nation what possibly happened is this the past 1000 years are what i call india's millennium of humiliation india came under foreign occupation first turkic occupation and then european occupation and the turks caused this incredible cultural and demographic genocide in india Mil- hundreds of millions of indians died it's not documented i'm sure we can figure out the actual numbers but india's historians are are they they will not talk about this right so you had this horrific genocide that happened over about a period of about 5 centuries so the minimum death toll would have been 100 million maximum could be way above 500 million and it's happened over 5 centuries 500 years so that the, these numbers do make sense okay and then you had the genocide that happened at the hands of the british at least 100 million indians died there so over a period of 1000 years you have maybe 500 or million or more indians dying in these horrific repeated genocides hmm? 
so in such an environment it became incumbent on all men to stay at home you cannot go to foreign countries on ships you have to stay at home and you have to protect your family you have to protect the honor and the security of your family and your of your of your relatives and so on so maybe that is why it became considered to be bad for indians or hindus to cross the sea and go abroad stay at home defend your family so maybe some it's something that emerged over the past 1000 years that it, it is a bad thing to go and cross the sea and go abroad stay at home and defend your defend your family and defend the honor so maybe it's something more recent because historically there is absolutely no doubt about this that india has always always been a major maritime seafaring nation and culture and civilization wow that's a big big question anurag says i have more than one question i think there are three here i've, I've taken two so uh, i came across two statements first some chinese sources have mentioned that lalita ditya the great was their vassal the tang empire's vassal second is that some sources have mentioned that the kshatriya rajput ruler baparawal was a vassal of lalita ditya muktapida and fought against the arabs on his behalf i don't know how authentic these statements are could you throw some light on these remarks so it is known that the tang empire claimed that lalita ditya muktapida was their vassal that's what they claimed well the chinese claimed that everybody was their vassal and that they they were the center of the universe that's what they claimed it doesn't mean it's it's facts the chinese the tang dynasty the tang empire also called india tianju which means the center of heaven and at that time the greatest emperor in india was lalita ditya muktapida he conquered most likely much of central asia and sindh and much of india as well so he had an enormous empire that would rival that of kanishka the great so such an emperor would not be the vassal of the tang there certainly would have been diplomatic relations and so on and maybe the tang liked to embellish facts in their own historical records it doesn't mean that these claims have any significant basis in reality so the fact is that lalita ditya was not anybody's vassal he was a great emperor in his own right and he had diplomatic relations with the tang so that's how it is about baparawal i am not quite sure i haven't really studied the history of baparawal and his relationship with other kings and rulers there is in, in, in fact a, a significant paucity of information of, of literature about baparawal so i am not quite sure about that i know i don't have sufficient knowledge as of today about this so maybe i can revisit this in the future okay the next question is during the period between the 3rd and the 6th century there were three adjacent neighboring great powers the romans the sasanians and the guptas correct while the romans and the sasanians were engaged in continuous large scale conflicts uh, contrary to it there were no such problems between the, between the guptas and the sasanians why is that please give me an answer this is an interesting question so so let's understand who the sasanians were the sasanians were our persian cousins so the sasanian emperor empire was located in iran and they had this long standing conflict going on with the western nations whether it is greek whether it is greece or later on the romans because the romans eventually uh, conquered 
Greece and therefore they came into conflict with the Persians. So during this period that uh, you speak about, there was indeed this uh, conflict between uh, the Sasanians and the Romans. It was an ongoing conflict. It, it just went on and on. And it's curious, it's quite curious that there was no significant conflict at any period in time between India and Persia. Whether it is during the Hakshamanish Empire, Achaemenid Empire, or the Sasanian period or whatever, right? It's only after the Islamization of Iran that the that the relations deteriorated between India and Iran. And uh, you had conflicts later on. So I am not quite sure why it is the case. Maybe it is this cultural and ethnic affinity that India and Persia had in the old days that prevented any such escalation or, or any, any such incident or conflict. Because it's true, the Persians always concentrated on expanding westwards and entering into conflict with western cultures, the Greeks and the Romans. They never ever had any significant conflict with Indians, ever. It is known that Darius uh, claimed that he had uh, some part of, of Western India as part of his empire. So that would probably be parts of Balochistan or some parts of Afghanistan, because Afghanistan, Gandhar has historically always been part of India and so on. But there was never any conflict between India and and Iran on any substantial scale. So I don't know why. I don't think any historian has even tried to answer that. The same way no historian tried to answer why Chinggis Khan never tried to invade India. He decided not to invade India. So maybe that's something I should give some thought to and figure out why before the Islamization of Persia, the Persians never tried to invade India or enter into any kind of conflict with, with India. Because India was not always unified under a great empire. We have these imperial phases, the Mauryans, the Kushans, even the Scythians at some point in time, Indo-Scythians. And then you had the Mahakshatrapas and all, then you had the Guptas and so on and so forth. But there were times when India was not unified under, under a single empire. And even in those during those periods, the Persians did not attempt ever to invade India or enter into a conflict. So that's a curious fact historical fact. So Anurag, thank you for asking this question. It is something I need to think more about. And maybe I will make a video about that in the future. But it's a very interesting question that you asked. Okay, Rutu says, wow, it's a long, long, long question. Okay. I had a history question. William Jones, Henry, Thomas, Colebrook, and so on and so forth all had this conviction to encourage Sanskrit and Arabic knowledge in India. They had a belief that if we want to rule India in a better way, we have to go with their perception. Such people who wanted to encourage Sanskrit and Arabic culture were termed Orientalists. People like Thomas Babington Macaulay, James Mill obstructed such practices and insisted that the British government stop investing money in such projects and notions. What if the Orientalists led India with their ideology? What was the scenario of India if there were no European customs? What would be the plot of the education system in today's world? Okay, thank you. Good question. So uh, I don't know about Arabic. Arabic is not an Indian language. It doesn't have any 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 locus standi in India. It's a foreign language. It belongs in Arabia, where it should prosper, but it has no uh, 
no reason to be in india now when it comes to sanskrit sanskrit is the medium in which india's education has historically always been until the 19th century when the macaulays and the the english destroyed india's education system and replaced it with this colonial system so if the orientalists had prevailed then india's indigenous education system would most likely have persisted and we would all be way more civilized today not westernized the, the way we are so that's the answer in short india would have been a much better place i would be speaking to you in sanskrit right now <laughs> that's what would have happened but as we know macaulay and his minions prevailed and they essentially destroyed india's education system and deracinated india and that process still continues as of today uh akash says this one is personal i'm sure it's important for everyone to know how do you keep your mind stable peaceful and productive in the modern world of toxicity left right debate geopolitical issues etc how do you not let your interests clash with your goals in your personal life uh how do i keep my mind mind stable peaceful productive well once mind is not always stable peaceful productive you obviously have emotions uh things affect you of course i have always been a very positive person i have never had any so these days it's very fashionable to talk about mental illness and depression and all these things well i personally have never ever experienced any of these things i've never personally met somebody with a mental illness or depression i've never experienced these things i am a very positive person a very cheerful person look everybody goes through ups and downs i have also gone through ups and downs that's it's not like everybody has this stable constant plateau or constant progress one goes through ups and downs in life and one has to deal with that so uh maybe it's part of who i am my my personality my nature but i am a very positive person even when things are not well i am positive i'm optimistic and i work towards progress so that's just the way i am i don't have any great secret of how i do this uh how do i not let my interests clash with my goals and personal life you know what there is no such separation or compartmentalization of your professional life and your personal life your life is your life it all comes together in one person so people talk about work life balance and keeping work at in the office and going home and having family life at home and so on that that's not quite how it works it all you cannot compartmentalize your life so in my case it's all together i've never tried to keep things separate that when i'm at home i should not think about certain things or not talk about certain things not do certain things and so on so i just go with the flow i'm an easy going guy i'm a happy guy so that's just just how it has been with me i have a reasonably stable mind peaceful mind and uh, yeah the world is full of toxicity there is this political debate left versus right geopolitical issues but i have known well for essentially forever since i've been around that that's the nature of the world there is good as well as bad in the world increasingly there is more bad but that's how the world always has been i am a student of history as much as i am a student of science i have i know what history has been like the history of the human species is a history of warfare and conflict so it doesn't surprise me that you see what we see in the world today so i am at peace with that i try to do what i can and 
let's see how it goes so so that in short is the answer right okay let's take a couple of questions more Ishan says, how can I become a good orator like our current Prime Minister, Mr. Modi? Okay, so how do you become a good athlete? You practice. How do you become a good boxer? You practice. How do you become a good swimmer? You practice. How do you become a better chess player? You practice. How do you become a better orator? You practice. You practice, 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 practice. So if you want to become a better speaker, a better orator, spend some time every day speaking about some topic. Go and stand in front of the mirror and speak and see how it feels. Or maybe you could take a camera and record yourself speaking and do that every single day. Maybe 10 minutes a day or or whatever. Our current Prime Minister, Mr. Modi, has been doing this for 50 years. I'm sure the the best part of five decades. Public speaking, day in and day out. It's practice that makes you better. You slowly improve over time. Some people are born with talent. Some people do not have certain kinds of talent. Talent is overrated. It's the hard work, the discipline that you put in that really makes you who you are. You put in the hours, you put in hour after hour, you put in hundreds of hours, you're going to improve. So that's what you have to do. All right. Um, One more question, two more questions. Um... Animish says, is it really fair to expect everyone to become an entrepreneur or have that mindset? Is it really bad to lead a simple life? Some people perform exceptionally well when they are given a protected work environment. In that case, are they not contributing towards building a community, a cause, a country in any way at all? I feel not everyone is cut out to handle the immense pressure or born with the risk-taking appetite. The entrepreneurs have to go through. Your thoughts? I, I think you're absolutely right. Most people do not have what it takes to be an entrepreneur and there's nothing wrong with that entrepreneurs probably make up maybe two to five percent of society the people with the appetite for risk the the appetite for whatever it takes to be an entrepreneur and most of the people are happy to have a protected stable work environment and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that not everybody should try to be an entrepreneur don't chase the latest fad in fashion Shark Tank, so everybody should be an entrepreneur. No, 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 no. Without the people who need the protected work environment, without the people who seek to work the 9 to 5 job and so on, without those people, there cannot be entrepreneurship. Because entrepreneurs need employees, reliable, good employees who will do the work. So there's a place for everything in any high-performing, productive society. There's a place for entrepreneurs, there's a place for people who would rather like to lead a stable, protected life and be productive in their own way. There's a place for everybody in a good society. And most people are not meant to be entrepreneurs. And that's perfectly fine. So that's just how it is. So you don't need to have the mindset. And it's not bad to live a simple life. It's actually very nice to live a simple, steady, peaceful, productive life. So everybody needs to figure out what's best for them, what is their aptitude like, and then pursue that. Okay, this is the last one for today. Tejas says, how can one bring discipline to do things consistently every day in life? You build discipline by starting very small. 
let's say you want to become a bodybuilder just a hypothetical example you you need to start by doing two push-ups every day make sure you do it every single day for let's say 10 days just do two push-ups and then you're done so you're building a habit then for the next 10 days do five push-ups per day and build upon that build upon these slow small habits the japanese have this thing called kaizen right the power of compounding you start with very small habits but build habits consistent habits don't break the habit let's say you want to broaden your intellectual horizons then make sure that you read you start small i'm going to read two pages every day that's it just two pages do it for a month then double it instead of two i'm going to read five slightly more than double so do that for a month and slowly slowly build up the habit the stamina the intellectual mental stamina for reading so you that's how you build discipline if you start with enormous goals you're going to give up immediately you're going to get disheartened so start with very small things start with something that doesn't take much resistance from inside and then you make then you then you build upon that so that's how you build discipline to do things consistently start small always start small make it easy for yourself to build a habit so don't start with something difficult start with something very very easy and it becomes second nature if you start doing it every day and then make it progressively more impactful uh animish says you always encourage us to become the best version of ourselves how do i know if i become the best version of myself are there any telltale signs comparison could be a vicious cycle in itself if i compare myself with you my heart sinks and so on don't get me wrong and yeah i am never going to be as great as you are this shouldn't stop me or anyone from striving to become better should it how can one get over that feeling of comparison you know what it's perfectly fine to compare yourself you are part of society you got to see other people you obviously will compare yourself with them and try to measure up where they stand where i stand and where you stand absolutely nothing wrong with that secondly how to become the best version of yourself listen listen it's a it's a work in progress you don't become the best version of yourself in a week or a month it's a lifelong process so identify something that you would like to improve at and then like i said build small habits build the discipline and over time over 5 years over 10 years over decade or two decades you will improve you'll get better and after a while you will f- you will feel you will find that you want to improve at something else now you've overgrown you've outgrown that uh, that initial uh, desire to become better at this then you will try to find something else to be better at as you grow and that's how it goes so it's it's a never ending process it's not like you realize one day that i have become today the best version of myself no it's not like that am i the best version of myself i'm not i have a long way to go so it's that's how it is the moment you stop growing stop stop feeling that you have to improve that's the moment you you become an old person right so always try to improve yourself it's perfectly fine to compare yourself with other people there's nothing wrong with that and that should not dishearten you so find two or three people whom you really admire ask yourself what are the, what are the traits that you admire in those people and then ask yourself how can you emulate some of those aspects and then build small habits and make them grow over time so maybe that's one of the ways to become the best version of yourself all right my friends that is it for today thank you very much for all the questions thank you very much for your viewership i really appreciate it and we're going to keep continuing this but that is 
it for tonight. So take care. Good night. I will see you next time. Bye-bye.